I'm going to read the first five verses of 1 Chronicles 23, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it together. So when David was old and full of days, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. And he gathered together all the leaders of Israel, with the priests and the Levites. And now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 years and above, and the number of individual males was 38,000. Of these, 24,000 were to look after the work of the house of the Lord. 6,000 were officials and judges. 4,000 were gatekeepers. And 4,000 praised the Lord with musical instruments, which I, ha- which I made, said David, for giving praise. And Father, we pray as we go through these chapters, as we look at these lists, Lord, you would show us why they're important. And that, Lord, the lesson that that you intended to give the first readers would become a lesson that we receive. Lord, please use this time to help us recenter our lives on you, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. Now, the original readers of this, if you remember, these are... Uh, people who have come back from captivity in Babylon, back to Jerusalem to help it be rebuilt. They're reestablishing Jerusalem as the center where they meet with God. The temple's been rebuilt and so on. As they're reading these lists or hearing these lists read out to them, they're probably thinking why these included in the series of sermons about Israel's history. Why all these names? Why all these lists? And I only read the first five verses for a couple reasons. One, I'm not going to torch you by trying to read all these names. Don't worry. But also to show that really uh, it's clear from what the author writes that he wants to show us how David continued to prepare uh, the kingdom for Solomon, his son. As you remember, uh, David wanted to build uh, God a house. God says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to do that through a promised son who's, who on the throne, on your throne, his descendants will rule forever. There will always be someone on the throne uh, of, of David uh, that will be a descendant of you. And so what happened, though, is we saw last week that God uh, allowed David to begin to do some preparations for this temple, this house of God to be built. Allowed him to gather the materials, gather the workers together. And that even told us something about uh, what God wants to do in gathering the house together, the purpose of God's house. And so here, really, that, that theme continues where David is preparing for the house to be built. But here what he's doing, he's preparing those leaders in Israel who are going to do the work that the house is meant to represent or the house is meant to facilitate. They're going to be doing this work. He's raising up these leaders. And in a very real sense, what he's doing is, he's making sure that when his son Solomon takes over, that the kingdom of God remains centered on God. That Israel keeps God at their center. Now you may have noticed in uh, verse 4 and verse 5, that David lists four groups of, of people that he's gathering. He talks about those who will look after the house of the Lord. He talks about officials and judges. He talks about gatekeepers. And he talks about those who praise the Lord with musical instruments. Now what's interesting is, David, when he begins to line out who these leaders are, he starts in a very specific order. He starts from the inside of Jerusalem out. He starts first off with, we'll see, the temple priests. 
Now there should be an image on the screen that kind of shows the Temple Mount, where the Temple of Solomon would be built. Of course, at the time that this is uh, referring to, it wasn't built yet, but this is what it would look like about. And you might see in the very middle, that small circle, there is this, that there is the kind of the holy, holiest place. And the first temple priest we're going to see, that's where they involved. And then he moves out to the musicians, the temple musicians. And they would work in the temple court. They would sing in the temple court. They would lead praise that people would be thinking about the God who they're bringing sacrifice to. And then after that, they get these gatekeepers. And you may see the arrow pointing to one of the many gates around the Temple Mount area. And the gatekeepers had their responsibilities. And then lastly, he deals with the leaders. Those who would kind of be going outside of Jerusalem to take care of responsibilities outside of Jerusalem. Now, this is very much on purpose. He's wanting to uh, say, okay, here's the way it works. The, the, the things of God's kingdom, the things of Israel, have to be centered at the temple. They have to be centered at where God meets his people. That everything starts from there, it flows out from there, and even as it flows out, it's meant to go pointing back to there. That the very center of their lives was where God met his people. And so we're going to look at each of these four groups and, and talk about how this applies to us. Because here's the truth. These four categories are meant to be a picture for these first readers. That they were to see that their, their, their country as their nation needed to be centered on God. But it's also meant for us. Because it's amazingly easy. I don't know if you've noticed how easy it is, even as Christians, to have our life get off-center. Where our focus is no longer on the Lord, it's on other things. Even sometimes good things. And God wants to recenter us, and He wants to use this text to do it. So, chapter 23, verse 13 is where we're going to start. Let's talk about the temple priests and their responsibility to maintain God's covenant. Verse 13, chapter 23, says, The sons of Amram, Aaron and Moses, and Aaron was set apart. He and his sons forever, that he should sanctify the most holy things, to burn incense before the Lord, to minister to Him, and to give the blessing in His name forever. Now, I want you to understand, we're, we're talking about sort of four categories of leaders that David's preparing. And the first three categories were all from the tribe of Levi. They were all Levites. And it's important that you recognize that every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. Okay, And so here, though, he's talking about the Levites that were priests. And in that verse, he kind of lays out the fourfold priestly ministry. How they were to do, be those who are the mediators between God and man. So let me kind of point these out quickly, these fourfold uh, aspects. Okay, The first one, when he says, sanctifying the most holy things, that has to do with the fact that they were the ones who were taking the sacrifices, they were taking the blood that was spilled from the sacrifices, they were sprinkling on the holy, on the, on the holy altar. They were the ones that were doing what was part of the work of atonement. They were making sure that the people's sins could be dealt with. Their sins could be forgiven and, and, and not held against them so they could be in this right relationship with God. This is what God did. God created a covenant for His people. A covenant, remember, is a contract based on love. God chose Israel. He built Israel. And He made a contract with them, a covenant with them, like a marriage covenant. And said, look, this is how we are to relate to each other. And that involved, first and foremost, that their sins be dealt with. And so these... 
priests, these Levitical priests, their first responsibility was to make atonement, to do the things that, that God required for atonement. But it also says in verse 13 that they were to burn incense to the Lord. This has to do with intercession. They were to pray for the people, to stand in that gap between them and the Lord. It says that the priests were to minister to him. And that is, the priests were to represent the people to God. But also it says they were to give blessings in God's name forever. In other words, they were meant to, to represent God to the people. So those are the four areas of mediation. Now, how many of you have ever read the book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews? Anybody ever read it? Oh, you're missing out if you haven't read it. It's a great book, okay? Especially if you take time to read the Old Testament book Leviticus, which sounds boring and it's a bit heavy going. But if you read Leviticus and see all the requirements, and then you go back and you read Hebrews, you see that all these pictures in the Old Testament, all these things that God commanded in the Old Testament, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. Because the whole purpose of Hebrews is to show us that Jesus brings a better covenant. In fact, listen to this. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25 says this. Now, uh, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But, Je but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You see, there's, there's two priestly things mentioned here. One is, of course, he's, he's a priest forever, so when he makes a sacrifice, it's good forever. The Bible is really clear about that in the book of Hebrews, that Christ died once for all men. But also, he's always making intercession for us. Now, th what that means is this, that Jesus, before the Father, God the Son, before the Father, he's not just saying, oh, please, Father, forgive them. Oh, please have mercy on them. It is that, but it's more than that. He's saying, Father, look, the wounds in my hands, the wound in my side, these intercede on their behalf. And the Father says, I am well pleased to accept them based on that. That's what we mean by intercession. Now, this is great because the fact that Jesus is alive forever, he resurrected, never to die again, that means, guess what? Our salvation is how long? Forever. That's glorious. Now, this is important because, remember, we're talking about how the temple priests, they maintain God's covenant. And the point is, it points back to Jesus and the fact that we know that Jesus is the one who maintains our covenant. And this has to remain central to our lives. This is why we take communion. To be reminded every time we take it that this is where we are centered. This is where it all begins and ends with what he's done for us. In fact, when talking about mediation, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there's one God and there's one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. That is the man Christ Jesus. There are no more priests in the sense of people who have to mediate to us for us. If you're thinking, I need to get to God, and I don't know what to do, I know John will help me get to God. Well, I might help you, but I'm not your mediator. Jesus is. It's Jesus who makes each of us right with God. He's the center of our faith. He's the author and finisher of our faith, the scripture says. And so this is the idea about, uh, when we talk about the temple priest maintaining God's covenant, is it points back to Jesus. But more than that, look at chapter 24, verse 5. Chapter 24, verse 5, it says, speaking of these priests, it says, Thus they were divided by lots. You guys know what lots are. They're kind of like dice, sort of, and they basically would throw these, these dice, and that would kind of determine, okay, who would uh, be, in, and what group would be uh, ministering in the sanctuary, which priests would be doing those uh, priestly mediation duties. 
He says, they were divided by light, verse 5, one group as another, for there were officials of the sanctuary and officials of the house of God, from the sons of Eleazar, from the sons of Ithmar. This is how they were divided. Now, you might go, okay, that sounds kind of weird. What's that? Why, that? why is that important? Well, according to the book of, of Proverbs, this is what lots do, and you see this all throughout Scripture. The Bible says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the idea of casting lots is about the fact that we have a sovereign God, a God who's completely in control, and so in casting lots, it's like saying, God, you decide who that priestly ministry is supposed to go to. Now, this is important, because even though Jesus is the only high priest, he's the only mediator, he's the only way we can be right with God, here's what the scripture also says about priests in the New Testament. Listen to this. The Bible says, speaking of believers, listen, this is us. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests. A holy nation. God's very possession. Notice, as a result, here's your priestly ministry. You can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you are little Jesuses and you can atone for people. That's not what I'm saying. Our priestly ministry is to point past ourselves and point each other to Jesus, our great high priest. That's our ministry. That God wants to use us. In fact, not just wants to, God commands that we be available to be used by Him to point each other to the goodness of God. This is what we do. This is amazing because what's amazing to, uh, about this is the fact that when we talk about, there's, a, there's a, a doctrine, a teaching in the New Testament that we, based on this verse and others, that's called the priesthood of all believers. And what this means is, there's not some sort of rank of people like, okay, there's those of us that are in leadership, and then there's you little sheep. That's yeah. not biblical. The Bible says when we come to faith in Jesus, that we're not only brought into God's family, but that we're made part of this royal priesthood. We're all priests. Now, I have different responsibilities, and even in some ways more responsibility as an elder than the rest of you guys would, and anyone who's not an elder would. But the, the truth is we're all priests. We're all called to point each other to the goodness of God. And not only that, listen, we can all go directly to the presence of God because of Jesus. That's amazing. That's amazing. And so this has got to be this, what centers our life. This is where everything starts and finishes. So this is what the first thing we see, the first circle that we see. These priests, they're maintaining God's covenant. They point to Jesus, our high priest, and they point to our priesthood as believers. Now, going over to chapter 25. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. David begins to, to lay out the musicians that he's prepared to lead worship in the temple. Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for service some of the sons of Asaph and Heman and Judathan, who should prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals. And the number of the skilled men performing the service was, and then he names the sons who did this, and he says in the end of verse 2, these who prophesied according to the order of the king, and at the end of verse Three, he says again, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. And then again, toward the end of verse 5, he says, And these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, who the, uh, in the words of God, to exalt his horn. Now this is interesting. Because when he begins to describe the, this music ministry, these temple musicians, it says specifically over and over again that these are those who don't just play music, but they're prophesying. 
This is what the Bible means by prophecy. It means speaking a specific word to a specific group at a specific time. It doesn't just mean talking about the future. It's not just foretelling, like thus says the Lord, this is going to happen in the future. It's also forthtelling, this is what God is, this is what God does, this is what God says. In a very real sense, in this context, these guys were singing, they were proclaiming God's truth through music. Now it's interesting that these three men that were mentioned in the beginning, Asaph, Heman, and Jedithan, all three of these men, you can, in fact you can look these up, uh, you can look up Psalm 50, Psalm 88, Psalm 77, look these up later. These and other Psalms are credited to these men. So these men actually wrote songs that got put into Holy Scripture. So they weren't just singing truth about God, they were actually singing inspired Scripture eventually. But also more than that, listen... It says specifically that, that they were doing this by the order of the king. In other words, they were singing the truth that they knew from the scriptures under the authority of the king they served. Now this is important. <clears throat> we have every reason to believe that what they sung was coming directly from God's law. That they were studying God's law. That's the scripture they had back then. It was just the first five books of the Bible. The five books of Moses. And they were studying that law... And singing about that, the truths of God from that law. Now one of the reasons we know this is because, of course, who was one of the main authors of the Psalms? David. David wrote the Psalms. And the, the Psalms, okay, the biggest chapter in the Bible is one song or one psalm, Psalm 119. 176 verses singing about the praises of God's word, His truth. Now this is important. It's important because we live in a day and age where, where we see music as radically important for church life, especially as sort of evangelical Christians. And we are a contemporary church. We use contemporary songs. We see music as a very important thing. You may or may not know this, but the group of churches that were involved with Calvary Chapel, that's where contemporary Christian music actually started. Back in the early 1970s, you had a bunch of hippies that were, a year or two before, smacked out on drugs. God radically saves these hippies. They're being taught the scriptures. They're being taught to follow Jesus. They're growing like crazy. They read the Psalms, and they go, Hey, Pastor Chuck, man, I got this cool groove to go with this psalm. And they get up there with their long hair, and they, they put, literally, they, they read a psalm, and they put it to modern music. That's how contemporary Christian music started. It was basically just singing truth in music that was emotionally familiar. And we say amen to that. That's a great thing. But here's the issue. We are increasingly seeing songs that are, that are supposed to be Christian songs that are singing things that aren't true. And we have to be really careful about this. Because the whole purpose of music ministry is to celebrate the revelation of God. What God has said about himself. So the issue is not a style. I remember we, uh, when we first started the church, one of the biggest crises we had in the church was over music. That there was a person in the church that thought any rock music is bad, any drums are bad. And I said to the brother in love, hey, I understand where you're coming from, but I just want to be completely true. We're going to have contemporary music. You'll probably think it's rock and roll. And we're going to have drums eventually. When we get a drummer, we're going to have drums. And praise God for Stephen and others. But the, the, the reality is that it created this really horrible division. And it shouldn't because it's not about music, but it is about what we're singing about and who we're singing to. Now here's the interesting thing. 
It says also later on that they were, part of their, their job in doing this, when they were prophesying or singing truth, that they were do so to give thanks and to give praise to the Lord. It was meant to provoke praise and worship. Because praise and worship is always, listen, a response to what God has done for us. If we sing to God to get something from God, that's not worship. That's manipulation. And it never works, by the way. God can't be manipulated. When we're going, okay, I'll sing. I'll really act spiritual. I'll really do this. And then God will, then God will give me what I need. No, that's not really worship. Now, it's good for us to crowd to God and say, I'm desperate for this thing and I need this thing. God wants us to cast our cares on Him. But real worship is when we respond to who God is. Jesus, when dealing with us, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and she says, well, hey, you know, our, our ancestors worship on this mountain, you Jews worship there, and I mean, who knows? And Jesus says, well, let, me, let me correct you. He says, here's what worship's about. He says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It has to be an authentic inside-out response to the truth of who God is and what He's done for us. And this is what, what, what David's shown us. The second, this is what the author of Chronicles has shown us. The second circle, the, the, the priority is celebrating this revelation. And I want you now to look at verse 8 quickly of chapter 25. It says specifically, that they again, to divide their duties, because these guys all played music on a rotation. It says that they cast lots for their duty. Notice what it says, the small as well as the great, the teacher with the student. Now what's interesting to me about this is, is again, there's, there's no room being left here for everybody picking their favorite worship leader. You know, it's very much on purpose that we have several teams. It's, it's, it is partly practical because we're obviously going to have multiple services soon. And, but it's also just because we don't want any of us to start worshiping the worship leaders. It's the same reason why I try to get other guys to teach. Nor do we want to get to this point where we go, oh, I really like it when they lead worship. I, I like their voice or their style. That's a very dangerous thing to get into. Because then worship becomes about what, what, what our preferences are instead of about who God is. And so the fact that they do this is really insightful. The fact that they do this is interesting. Now, there's something else really interesting here too. There's something I really want to, to focus on. The, the, the worship that these guys were bringing forth, the worship and something they're bringing forth, it was definitely acts of celebration. Now, now I want to be clear here. The, the Psalms are, they kind of cover the whole gamut of human emotion and response and experience. It's appropriate for us to, to mourn in worship at times. It's appropriate for us to intercede for others in worship at times. It's appropriate, appropriate for us to, to learn things through worship, okay? But it's, it's really important that we see worship as a response to who God is and what He's done for us and that we actually celebrate that. Worship is meant to be a celebration. And I, and I don't want to be harsh, guys, but sometimes it feels like you're not very good at celebrating. It's concerning at times. Sometimes it's glorious, but sometimes it's not. And I, and I get it. I don't want to pick on personalities or anything like that. But I just, I think, I wonder to myself, what, what's going on? See, here's, here's an interesting dynamic. And this is true of all humans everywhere. All humans will talk about what they think is important. Or what they think should be talked about. But they only celebrate what they're convinced is the most important. 
What's the most important thing to you? Who's the most important person to you? See, our song should reflect that. This is when worship becomes a witness. See, worship isn't a witness just because it's, it's hyped up and it's exciting. That by itself isn't necessarily a witness. People can just think, oh cool, they must be excited about whatever they believe, that's fine. But eventually, if that, doesn't, if that doesn't, isn't matched by a life that is saying we want to follow Jesus, people will see right through that. At the same time though, if we say, oh yeah, we think Jesus is really important... And then we're kind of quiet, reserved, bored when it's time to celebrate. And then they see us at the football game going nuts for Norwich City. Something's not right there, is it? It's not right there. Again, I'm not wanting us to, I'm not wanting to promote emotionalism, but I am calling us, the Bible calls us to celebrate our God. You go, yeah, John, but that's easy to say if things are going good. What about if things are going bad? Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to this. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I like the way it, it takes these verses. Peter writes, These trials, difficulties, painful times, will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. And it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole earth. That's when he comes back. And then it says, this is what it says. What Peter says to believers going through trials. He says, you love him. That is, you love Jesus. Even though you've never seen Jesus. And though you don't see him now, you trust Jesus. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Does that sound like our worship service? Not so much. <laughs> Again, I'm, there's no condemnation. I, I really, I'm not trying to condemn us. I'm not trying to get, I just definitely don't want you to fake it until you make it. That's bogus. <laughs> I'm encouraging you to think about the Savior you follow. The Jesus that you love and trust. He's worthy to be celebrated. And it's what helps us center our lives back on Him. See, the whole reason God calls us to involve music in our worship is, worship helps us to make an emotional connection to the truth. Emotions are good if they're submitted to the truth of God. And if we only believe the, the truth of God intellectually, and we never switch to the point of celebrating that, something's not right. Now, if you're the kind of reserved person that's always reserved all the time in all circumstances, you don't go nuts at a football game or any other time, you know what? More power to you. Just be chilled and celebrate Jesus. That's fine. But, I mean, is it unreasonable to think if we ever get excited and celebrate anything other than Jesus, that Jesus is more worthy to be excited about? Do you see what I'm saying? And so, so what David's saying is, look, we're, we're making it a massive priority, second only to the, the work of the priest and bringing atonement, to make sure that we are celebrating who God is and what he said. Because no one's more worthy of our, heart, our heartfelt celebration than Jesus himself. So that's the temple musicians, the second group of people. Here's the third group of people, the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers. Look at verse 26, or chapter 26. Chapter 26, starting in verse 1. The author writes, Concerning the division of the gatekeepers, and then he lists a whole bunch of these people who they are. Verse 4, he mentions the sons of Obed-Edom. You remember who Obed-Edom was? He was the guy who, uh, the, the, the temple stayed at his house because initially the Israelites didn't carry the temple the right way. 
And so there was that guy who died. And so basically it stayed at his house and God blessed him. And we don't know for sure who Obed-Edom was, but he has a Gentile name and yet he's listed among Levites. That's pretty amazing. It's a huge privilege. But here's what it says about these group of men. Look at verse 6. It says, these were men, the end of verse 6, men of great ability. The end of verse 7, these were able men. The end of verse 8, able men with strength for the work. The end of verse 9, able men. Now here's, here's the interesting thing about these guys. If you look at, uh, chapter, go back to chapter 23 for a second. Chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. Look at that for a second. It says, For David said, The Lord God of Israel has given rest uh, to his people that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever. Remember, they're going to build the temple in Jerusalem instead of having it travel around. They're going to make that their capital. And as uh, also to the Levites, they shall no longer carry the tabernacle or any of the articles for its service. Now, the reason I bring that up is because the people here that are going to be gatekeepers, and we'll talk about gatekeepers in a second, these were guys who used to have to carry all the stuff for this tabernacle. Huge, heavy stuff. So these guys were yoked. I mean, these guys were buff, right? Now, that's important because what gatekeepers do, well, they're kind of like doormen, <laughs> holy doormen. And they make sure the baddies stay out and the goodies get in. That's kind of what they do. All right? Part of their responsibility was like security. It was to make sure that people wouldn't come and disrupt, wicked people wouldn't come and disrupt the worship of God. They were like security. Now, we don't need security here. I think we're okay. Uh, don't worry about that. But we do need gatekeepers because they did other things besides that. Okay? They had that strength to keep the temple holy to make sure that uh, wicked people didn't come in and defile the temple. But also look at verse 20 of chapter 26. It says, of the Levites, there's Ahijah, who was over the treasuries of the house of God. Notice it says, treasuries of the dedicated things. And then if you drop down to verse 24, it talks about the son of Moses, who is overseer of the treasuries. Again, verse 26 talks about these who were over all the treasuries. Verse 27, again, the dedicated, uh, uh, they, the, these, they were dedicated to, uh, I'm sorry, talking about the spoils that were won in battle that were dedicated to maintain the house of God. Now, one of the responsibilities of the gatekeepers was to basically make sure the house of God was maintained. In other words, they were responsible for the finances that came in. Now, you might think, gosh, John, it was, getting, it was so spiritual, and then you're getting into this. But this is the point. The point is, listen, for the people of God to remain centered on God, there has to be a lot of practical work that goes into it. Seriously. And that practical work, the author of Chronicles is showing us, is holy work. In fact, it's interesting. These guys, if they're going to maintain the house of God, be good stewards and safeguarding God's resources, they had to understand what God required that money to be spent on, and they had to be able to discern the practical needs that came up. It's a big deal. Listen, there's a New Testament parallel to this. When, uh, when um, the Apostle Paul is in Corinth, and he's taking up a collection for the poor, he's, he's being really careful to make sure he's being discerning and wise and how that money is handled. Listen to what he says. He says, we are traveling together to guard against any criticism for the way we are handling this personal or this generous gift. We are careful to be honorable before the Lord, but we also want everyone to see what, uh, that we are honorable. In other words, he's saying, look, we want to be above board in how we deal with the finances. That's basically what's, what David has set apart these gatekeepers for. 
Now, this is a really important thing, and I, and I think this is a really appropriate time for me to say thank you to those of you who are, have been so generous to the church over the years. You've been super generous, and it's a real blessing to all of us. Uh, this is also the why we show, we put a record of here's where the money, what money came in, and here's where we spent it. That's also why we show you this is what we've recorded that you've given, and if it's not accurate, please talk to us about it. Of course, we don't know if it's anonymous, but the, ones that we, the stuff that we do know. We, we do this because we want to be above reproach. We want to be good gatekeepers. Now, isn't this one of the issues? Isn't this one of the things that people uh, will, will slam Christianity for? Is that all we deal with is money, all we care about is money? This is why we have to be so above board when it comes to money. In fact, listen, when it comes not just to, to, to money, but even how we practically meet the needs of others, we need to make sure that there are godly men and women who know how to do this. Acts chapter 6, verse 3, when, when the apostles are, are ministering to thousands and they can't keep up with the material needs of the congregation, here's what they say, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of holy, the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, which was simply of distributing resources to the needy. In other words, as far as the, the apostles thought, those who were going to do things like feed the homeless and, and make sure those that needed money in the, in, the, in the fellowship got the money they needed, the material resources they needed, they had to be godly, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because this is holy business. It's holy business. Now, some of you are wondering, what's my calling? What's God want me to do? Maybe what God's calling you to do is be involved in this kind of thing. You can, you can talk to Ben. He's not here this week. He's at a wedding. But you can talk to Ben. He is so busy trying to keep up with just all the admin stuff. We really want to raise up an admin team. Because this is holy business. And we want God to be honored in it. And see, so here, here's why it's holy business. Because the way we spend our resources, time, talent, and treasure, is meant to point back to the temple. It's meant to point back to Jesus. And so it takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of work to make sure that we do this. And can we be honest about something? Everything that we have, everything we possess, is a gift from God and is for His glory. Do we really believe that? Yes. Because this is what God's calling us to. This is what helps us stay centered. Now, lastly, he then talks about this last group of people that are really like political and military leaders. And we see that they're just simply serving God's king. Look at verse 20, or chapter 26, verses 29 to 32. It mentions some gentlemen who uh, performed duties, verse one of chapter twenty, or verse twenty-nine, sorry, of chapter twenty-six. Those who performed duties as officers, or I'm sorry, as officials and judges. Notice over Israel, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem. You see, see this pattern. They start from the inside. They work their way out. Now, this is important <clears throat> because what we see happening with these guys is that they are giving a local out, a oversight to those outside of Jerusalem. They're not just focused on when people come to the temple for worship. They want to know about how people are doing in everyday life. And so they're going out there to meet both religious and secular needs. So they're, they're there to kind of make sure that people are, are doing well with the Lord, but they're there to make sure people are just doing well normally. This is how they serve the king. Now, we have... There's a ministry here 
that we do where we make sure that people uh, have their needs met outside of Sunday morning. You know what it's called? It's called love. It's called each of us choosing to do it. The reason we have house groups is so that you can know each other, so you can know each other's needs. So people can know your needs and, 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 and you can know their needs and you can meet one another's needs so that we're doing this outside of Jerusalem, so to speak. That's why it's there. This is how we serve the king. Jesus, how can I serve you? Hey, it's great if God calls you to another country to do great ministry or God calls you to give up everything and, and, and sell all that you have and give to the poor. That's all glorious, but really, usually God just says, I want you to start by just loving one another. Outside... 10.30 and 12.30 on a Sunday morning. Now, if you look at uh, verse 20, or chapter 27, verse 1. He now talks about these, the military divisions. He says, uh, These serve the king in every matter of the military divisions. And these divisions came in and went out month by month. Now, it's interesting because he, he basically says for each tribe, there's overseers, and for each tribe of Israel, there were people who had to serve in this, men who had to serve in this military fashion. And the way they organized it was basically they're on this rotation, so each tribe only had to do one month, 12 tribes, 12 months. Uh, they were lunar months, shorter years, but still, that's what they did. And so they're on this rotation. Now, the issue is here, they're not looking for conflict. They're not out there on the borders of Israel kind of going, all right, come on, we're God's people, we'll take you on. That wasn't the issue. They were actually, what they're doing here, is they're actually protecting, they're an organized defense along the borders. They knew as God's people that they had enemies, and those enemies wanted to attack. So they, but they weren't looking for conflict. They were just wanting to protect from the attack. Now this has a parallel for us when it comes to we have an enemy. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, listen, it says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kinds of suffering as you are. So how do we roam the borders for protecting against the enemy? We pray. We pray. We pray for one another. We pray against the work of the enemy. We, when we see the work of the enemy, we pray specifically. We even warn if need be. Now it's interesting. In this list of military leaders, we read down in, in verse 23 and 24 of uh, chapter 27. Here's what we read. It says... But David did not take a number uh, of those. Uh, but David did not take the number of those twenty years and uh, old and under, because the Lord had said He would multiply Israel like the stars of the heaven. Now Joab the son of Zerah began a census, but he did not finish, uh, for the wrath had come upon Israel because of that census, and nor was the number recorded in the account of the chronicles of King David. Now remember that story from a few chapters ago, don't we? Now, it's interesting, though, we can think about, oh, yeah, that whole census thing, that went pear-shaped, that was bad. But actually, what's really interesting, and probably would have struck the first readers most, is what he says in verse 23, that David stopped at the age of 20, because of why? Because God had made a promise. God had said, I'm going to multiply Israel like the stars of the sea. 
And so the author of Chronicles is saying, it wasn't just the fact that there was the wrath of God poured out, but that David realized, i got to be careful here, because i got to just trust God's promise. i got to just take God at his word. Well, this is important, and it has to do with how we stand up against our enemy. God doesn't want us to be confident in our strength. He doesn't want us to think, I'm strong in God, therefore I will fight against the enemy. No, he wants us to be confident in him, and he wants us to trust him. James 4, 7 says, therefore, submit to God. This is how you defeat the enemy. First step, submit to God, he says, then resist the devil and he will flee from you. If the enemy's attacking you, the first thing we need to do is say, all right, God, where am I not submitting? <laughs> I, I want to be submitted to you. Is there a sin I need to confess that I haven't confessed? Is there a command I have to obey? Is there a relationship that I need to reconcile with? Lord, is there, is there, what is it that you want me to do? I want to submit myself to you because the enemy's beating me up here. Then as we do that, we resist the devil and then he flees. See, it's not about, God, I got this. I'm going to be strong. You think that way, you're going to lose. Now lastly... In verses 25 to 32, in fact, I'm not even going to really read these for the sake of time. But lastly, what he does is it really just describes these guys that were the closest men to David. These were trusted, trusted officials, some of whom were responsible for uh, the, the king's own resources, his flocks, his fields, that kind of thing. They kind of watched over his wealth. He trusted them to watch over his own wealth. I mean, um, can you imagine, uh, you know, you guys would be surprised if I said, hey, we need to get, I need to give some money to somebody. Here's my bank card. Here's my PIN number. Can you go get some money out? You'd kind of go, whoa, you're going to trust me with that? Amen. In a sense, this is what David's doing with his men. He's trusting, I wouldn't trust you with that, by the way. But this is, <laughs> I'm teasing, I'm just teasing, I'm just teasing. But this is what David's doing. But also, they're the men that would, that would advise him. Now, now, I want to make this point really clear, clear because I want to point back to this. These men who are working on the outside, again, this is the kind of stuff that doesn't seem so, it's not so, it doesn't seem so spiritual, but it's actually really important because the whole reason that, that David sets up these men to minister outside of Jerusalem was to make it easier for the people to come back into Jerusalem. This is the command. The command was this, according to the, the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 16, it says three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord has blessed you. To fulfill that command, to make sure they could get there those three times a year, to make sure they had a gift to offer, to make sure they could come and enjoy the Lord, all these things had to be in place. See, the reality is, guys, God's calling us to be centered on Him. And that's more than just knowing where the temple is. It's maintaining or seeing that Jesus maintains that covenant that we have with God and encouraging each other in that. It's about celebrating the truth of God, making sure it's truth that we understand and truth that we believe to the point that we celebrate it. It's about safeguarding God's resources, being good stewards with our time and treasure and talent to this end. And it's about making sure that our ministry is not just in Jerusalem on a Sunday morning, so to speak, but it's outside, helping as many people as possible come in and worship. 
This is what we mean by being God-centered. Let's pray that in right now. Father, we pray that you would help us to have our lives centered on you. And Lord, we, we, we know that we all fall short in this. We know how easily distracted each of us are. And so, Lord, we want to just confess and say, God, forgive us. Have mercy on us, Lord. Lord, Lord, you're worthy. You're worthy of all of our affections, Lord. We want you to capture the things that we desire most. We want you to be the thing that we desire most. That we long for you, Lord. We know that's good and that's right. And that you're worthy of that. And so, Father, I pray you would help us to help one another in this. Lord, that all that we do, no matter how, how much of our ministry is on the outside of the circle, we'll all be, to be, be bringing us back in to sit before you, our high priest, to worship, to go right into the presence of God because of him. And Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they'd want to know you. They'd want to know this God who's taken so much time to give us his word to organize a people who would go through so many things just to show his own reality. The God who would himself take on human flesh and live this earth as we did, suffer all the ways we have, be tempted all the ways we have, and yet not sin, but provide a perfect death and a perfect resurrection to guarantee our own. Lord, bring people to that saving faith. We love you, Lord. We pray you do whatever needs to be done for us to, to get recentered on you. Please, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.